In a world where three pudgy middle school history teachers discuss random aspects of history. Uh, I got nothing. Oh, Hatfield, we got you. Yeah, it, wait, who you calling pudgy? Yeah, man, that's, that's kind of rude. No, 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 I'm rude. Welcome one, welcome all to the History Bros podcast. I got it right this time. They can't give me crap about that. But sure, well, I can still give you crap about it. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> and it only took me one try this time. Uh, we are back. It is the History Bros. Jason Rude, Jason Hatfield, Brian Geldmacher coming from hey. you live from these studios recorded across the country or something like that. I don't know. Uh, how recorded live, coming to you recorded from whichever time you happen to be. You could be using the bathroom for all we know, but you're we, listening and we appreciate that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we guys, we have our first guest on the show this week. Cool. First, well, not nice. just this week. Yeah, our first guest ever. So yeah. It's true. That it's, is true. It, it, is our, it is our first guest. And, so, um, Brandon I, Dill- I just want to... What's that? I just want to say that I'm I'm very uh, happy to have Robert De Niro on today. <laughs> <laughs> Who's that? Oh wait a minute, no wait. Is that was that this week? No, I'm sorry. That's, no. I, spoiler no. alert. That's um that's the Never podcast that we have. Right. No, no, yep. whoa, 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 whoa. You are an actor. You have connections. Get it done. Never say never. You weren't you going to get Robert way Redford? Way oversell my ability. You were way get- <laughs> way oversell. Hey, 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 hey. Anybody with a Wikipedia page is good enough in my book. <laughs> Cha-ching! Oh, wait, let me check. There's another nickel. <laughs> I'm glad that I could help. I wish I had a I wish I had some sort of sound like thing here. I could just drop a, a nickel right here on my table. <laughs> ding 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 Every time you do it, it's like, wow, look at me. I'm rolling around in the cash. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we do. We actually do have. Oh no! Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, that that could work. God, this so, is what, what has what, happened. What? Yeah, is, it, what? we're going from the history bros slash laugh in. <laughs> Wait, laugh in. That's like too. from the seventies, isn't it? <laughs> what? Is, uh, what okay. Know. When was it? It doesn't I don't know. You know, it, I mean, it was old. <laughs> I, I, I'm saying it was older than me. I don't remember it. I, I don't know if I was alive when it was around. I've got socks older than you, Rude. <laughs> That's gross. That is. Are they well, they're washed? clean. Oh, okay. they're clean. They're they uh, It's uh, it's they're heirloom socks. Oh, oh. <laughs> they 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 were woven in the old country. Oh boy. <laughs> and brought over here um, during uh, the tyrannical reign of Oliver Cromwell. You sound like Ron Burgundy. So getting back to our scholars uh, lost the meaning of it years ago. (laughs) Hey, by the way, I went back and listened to last week pods last week's podcast. I wasn't Mm -hmm. saying that the British had terrible theater. I was saying that I was speaking terribly and it got misinterpreted. So then we (laughs) We get it. It's fine. Yeah, okay. No, we're not going to. If you're going to give me a hard time about a Wikipedia page, no, I'm hanging you out to dry on this one, Rude. Oh, I deserve it. It's okay. I'm totally fine with it. But I just wanted to put that out there on the record or whatever this is. It doesn't matter. I'm not here here about the truth, Rude. I'm not here about the truth. You better be. 
That's I'm here about speculation only. That's that, that's what history is. Well, then you are going to love our guest, Brandon Dillard from Monticello. He's the special director, or the director of special programs out there. Uh, he will join us here after the break. Um, he's <laughs> he's been busy. He actually was featured in the uh, the Washington Post article that just came out about historical interpretations. We talked mm-hmm. about that last week. Um, he's been on C-SPAN for a few different things on, on some panels. Um, he's, he's an algebra guy. I think you're really going to enjoy what he has Wait to minute, say. Is it the Washington Post or the Amazon Washington Post? Because I'm reading these Twitter uh, posts, and um, is it is it the same newspaper? It was the Washington Post. Okay, mm-hmm. just want to make yep. sure. At least that's what the, the, the other staff members at Monticello said. No, it is the Washington Post. It I mean, is. they I could be wrong, but you know, they only the f- live in Virginia near Washington. But you know, whatever. The the I'm just talking about the feud between Trump and. Oh, I'm sorry. Really, oh, you were yeah. going. Topical. He never refers to it as the Washington Post. It's always like some kind of like. Oh, it's the whole the, the Bezos thing. Ah, okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, totally not worth the the side journey. Have so, we anyway, um, in the history this week at all? <laughs> Yeah, yeah not, let's uh, we got we'll a go this there. week in history segment, so uh, let's so, uh, let's go with that one. On uh, September sixteenth of sixteen twenty, which is many years before my mom was born, happy birthday, mother. Um, the nice. Pilgrims set sail from England on the Mayflower. This week in history, it happened. Yeah. Hey, did you know that only about forty people about um, <laughs> hello about forty of the people on board were actual pilgrims. I did not know that. Like, you're saying that it was... Wait, what do you mean? Well, there was like 100 and something people on board, but only about 40 people were actually on the journey for religious reasons, which is what a pilgrim is. Um, and the rest of the people there were either the crew or just people who were um, going to the new world, quote-unquote. Really? Well, life. regardless of how many people came after that first winter, less than half of them were alive. That uh, sounds very similar to another place we talked about named Jamestown. Right. Yeah, and do you, uh, here's a, a quick little thing, because uh, my class is actually going to start uh, researching that this week. But uh, do you know what the, uh, the, what the journey time was? Actually, there were two boats. It was the Mayflower and the Speedwell. Well, not at the same the, time, though. Well, no, they were both supposed to leave at the same time. And the Speedwell, ironically enough, uh, was unseaworthy. Right. She uh, kept springing a leak, so right. So they had to kind of combine people onto the Mayflower, and then there were some people that were just like, "No, this is this is a bad sign. We're not going to show up." Mm-hmm. So do you know how long the journey was Six from uh, Plymouth to New Plymouth? It's kind of funny how they went from Plymouth to Plymouth. Well, they six called weeks. yeah six weeks, six weeks. about sixty six days, sixty six oh, days. Oh, so a little. Yeah, about two months. Okay, so more like 10. And think about that. I mean, you've got some cruise ships where people are getting sick and stuff like that, Disney cruise ships and whatever, but, you know, you've got people that, you know, there's no bathrooms really, mm-hmm. um, right. no showers. People are staying below decks a good chunk of the time. Right. Um, and, of course, when we, if you want to talk about slavery, obviously the conditions were considerably worse. <laughs> but, but for the people who were actually paying to go, this was uh, – they're a little ripe by the time they got over to the new world. Oh, without a doubt. Hey, have you ever heard the uh, the um, oh Harvey Paul Harvey story about what happened to the Mayflower? No. So I think I have. It's but go ahead. Yeah, I think it's on YouTube still. I found it once. Put yeah, you guys know who Paul Harvey is, right? 
This is Paul Harvey. With the yeah, rest yeah, of the yeah. story. So one of the rest of the stories is the uh, the story of what happened to the the, the Mayflower, basically. Um, and I won't spoil it. Uh, we'll, we'll see if I can't find that link, and I'll put it in the, the description of the podcast here, and I'll get it to you guys. But it's, it's just kind of cool. It. It's really cool. Spoil it. Like, what did the boat sink? Like, Titanic? What do you... What do you... I hope sport? you're not trying to rewrite history, Rude. I hope this is no. I wouldn't. You're not dude. trying to Come push on. some sort of agenda. No, I, no, yeah. no, 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 no. Saying, no. Rude. Jeez, <laughs> are you foreshadowing? No. <laughs> All right, next topic. Come on, guys. <laughs> How would I know what we're going to be talking about in an interview that hasn't happened yet? Because I know <laughs> the nature of what we're going to get into. Oh well, there you go. Yeah. See, time is again. Man. I'm so uh, September nineteenth <laughs> of uh, sixteen ninety-two. Go ahead. Now you go ahead. Oh, um, is it Giles? Giles, like Jay Giles Band, or the Giles Giles Corey? Let's call him Giles. Let's just go, go with Giles. Giles Corey is pressed to death for standing mute and refusing to answer charges of witchcraft brought against him. He's the only person in America to have suffered this punishment. Yes, this is during the Salem witch trials, if yes. I'm correct. Yes. Um, you had individuals who were put on trial for uh, various and a sundry uh, unproven charges, and one individual was uh, pressed with stones, as they called it, which basically you laid them down on a, I believe it was one slab of stone, and then you placed large, uh, like a larger stone on him, and then stones on top of that until he was basically crushed to death. Oh, that sounds Which, awesome. Yeah, and, you know, it's one of the things that, um, you know, considering that this was, you know, Salem and this is kind of like a, a a devout religious group, that was something that Jesus taught a lot is, uh, yep. you mm -hmm. know, let's go ahead and press these people with stones and kill them because, you know, why not? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, do you guys ever do anything with the Salem Witch Trials in class? Uh, we usually, um, have, uh, we usually accuse a couple of students per class of witchcraft and then wind up killing them before the end of the school day. <laughs> Jesus sure. Lord. As you do. <laughs> <laughs> no, we touch upon it, but we don't do any sort of like, um, role play or any of that. No, no, no. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Um, ah, Gelmacher. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Gelmacher, you had a good one. I think you dropped in there. I want to hear about it. Yeah, this week in 1780, American General Benedict Arnold meets with British Major John Andre to discuss handing over West Point to the British in return for the promise of money and a high position in the British Army. The plot was, of course, foiled, and Arnold, who is a former American hero, becomes synonymous with the word traitor. Indeed. Uh, do you guys, I love the story. Have you ever watched the, the series Turn? Love. Oh, yeah. Turn. The guy that plays Andre is, uh, I mean, he's very fascinating to watch mm -hmm. as an actor. And actually, there's a, where he was hanged is a cul-de-sac in this kind of little, if you Google search it, like on uh, Google Maps, mm -hmm. you should know this, Rude. You, uh, you're pretty adept at that. Um, it's like this little fenced-in area in a cul-de-sac where there's a stone monument that says, yeah, Andre was executed here for that kind of stuff. And it's like, you know. Wow. And where is it? And it's it's like you you think that there are these places, and you wonder which places aren't marked. But this you know fascinating location where this event took place, and it's you know how many people 
really stop by to take a look at it how many people really care anymore so <laughs> what town is that in? little known fact because of this uh situation we changed how a certain type of egg is made uh oh <laughs> egg benedict. Benedict. benedict arnold ah. i'm just kidding no i don't know i don't know that at all that's that was um fair that enough was a guess where where was andre where's this cul-de-sac you're talking about um, it's where Andre was, uh, executed. Yeah, I, but what, um, like, what town is it in? Well, let me see. Uh, you, you just, you guys keep going on and I'll do that research real quick. Okay. I can do that. We can do that. Absolutely. Sure. Oh, one question before you do that. Uh, did you know anybody that was intern? Yes. Really? Who? Um, let's see. There was a, there was a British soldier that had uh, he was recurring and they shot and killed him um okay. he was in a few episodes i think in the first season um and uh let's see i have another who played like a, one of the dragoons i think uh and he wanders off and th they were searching for the um oh god it's been a while since i've seen it <laughs> uh they were searching for the one scottish guy who was in a braveheart mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And he winds up, and I texted him while I was, watching, I was watching it on Netflix, and he wanders off, and his character winds up getting separated from everybody else, and I just texted him saying, you're going to die, I bet. <laughs> and he did, and he got killed. So, um, yeah, I've known um, uh, at least, I'm wanting to say two people that I, uh, I mean, a lot of really fantastic actors in Wilmington, North Carolina, that, um, you know, once they started moving everything down to, well, this one was obviously filmed around Williamsburg and whatnot, but mm -hmm. uh, when they started moving stuff down to uh, Georgia because of the tax incentives in North Carolina, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just uh, when they were still filming things in North Carolina, so many, myself included, you know, got some really nice work. And then the General Assembly said, no, we want to change the 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 tax rebate rate so that all these jobs will go away that's what missouri did too yeah. which is a shame uh yeah. we took away tax credits out of iowa because of loopholes and whatnot and yeah we, i mean feel oh. the dreams ain't getting made here again feel the dreams too i should say <laughs> anyway oh here's a big one that's kind of a big deal uh in 1787 on the 17th of september the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia approves the Constitution for the United States of America, thus spawning required education day for all of us across the country. <laughs> and what I mean by oh, that, yeah. we are literally required by law to teach the Constitution on Constitution Day, or at least during that week. Really? Did you get your Constitution Day uh, uh, stuff in? No, we, that's, that's not a requirement that I'm aware of. Oh, really? We're required yeah. to. Now, I mean, we have to teach the Missouri Constitution and the U.S. Constitution to our eighth graders, but that's not on Constitution Day. Do you, oh, oh, you're in a private school, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So if you well, get, we're, better, we're not required to teach it on Constitution Day, but we're. I but. I was maybe it's just Iowa then. I'm pretty sure that we're required at least during the week that we're supposed to do something. But hmm. anyway, moving on. Okay, uh, Major Andre Monument. Oh, oh, yes. Oh, I saw a picture of it. Yeah, Major Andre Monument. Uh, let's see. <laughs> located at T-A-P-P-A-N -P -P uh, in Rockland County. Tappan, New York. Sounds Tappan. Uh, New York, yeah. is a 
gray granite monument erected in 1879 and approximately 40 inches square and 58 inches tall. It is located in a circular plot, approximately 31 feet in diameter. It commemorates the site of the hanging of Major John Andre on October 2nd, 1780. All I'm going to say is in a cul-de-sac. There is yep. a lot of cul-de-sacs there. I got to got to be more specific than that. Well, if you take a look on, uh, I can give you the uh, 410716 North and 735717 West. Oh, are you looking on Wikipedia? Why did no, you just... I'm actually looking at it. If you if you go into Google Earth oh. and you type in John Andre execution, it will take you to the major Andre uh, monument. Oh, oh, here it is. I found it. It's really close to New Jersey, actually. It's very close. It's like within a stone's throw of the New Jersey line. Well, there it is. But there even John is. Andre said, I, I refuse to be executed in New Jersey. <laughs> Not far from the uh, Hudson. Oh, just south of. So this is just north of Washington, D.C. Okay. All right. Anyway, moving right along. Uh, let's see. Uh, did we talk about Washington? No, we didn't. Nope. Uh, in 1793. You got it. George Washington, in all his Freemason glory, lays the foundation stone for the U.S. Capitol. All right. And they actually wanted him to be buried in the bottom of the uh, the U.S. Capitol. And he was like, no, I'm sick of this place. I want to go home. <laughs> yes. In fact, <laughs> if you go there, they'll talk about the, the crypt. And that's where he was supposed to. Yeah. Somebody else decided that for him. And you're right. He said, uh, no more. No mas. And that's how he said it, too. Right. No mas. No, yes. no mas. Yeah, no mas. absolutely. He was uh, he was known for his fluence in uh, Spanish. Yeah. Ah, uh, so they actually uh, most of his friends called him Jorge Washington. <laughs> oh my lord! Hey, in 1850, on September 20th, the slave trade was abolished in the District of Columbia. Now, I will give you um, something, you two, uh, if you know which document it was that actually made this happen. It was the act of uh, abolishing slavery in the United States, wasn't it? Yeah, but it was part of a major piece of legislation. Major piece of legislation. What's that? And, uh, well, I mean, I know that they had they had set a time period for it for the. Uh, that was well, the end of the it? trade, like importing slaves. That was right, importing yeah, slaves. That was eighteen oh eight. But this is like abol abolishing slave. Like you couldn't sell slaves in the district anymore. And this is part of a major. I think I, I can't. It's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't think. I, I know. It was in 1850. It's the Compromise of 1850. Yes. <laughs> the Missouri Compromise. Was it, no, was, no, that was 1820. That's 1820. The, the Compromise of 1850. I think it's a great compromise. No, that's not the Great Compromise. Anyway, 1850 <laughs> uh, basically knocks out Missouri Compromise. Yeah. Because it goes from 3630 being the line north and south to popular sovereignty and the states get to vote when they come in. Thus yeah. pushing us towards war and bleeding Kansas. Sure. And some guy by the name of John Brown doing a lot of crazy stuff. <laughs> but that's for another Indeed. day. <laughs> All right. You guys got another uh, uh, Let's see. So uh, September 17th, 1862, the Battle of Antietam. In Maryland, the bloodiest day in U.S. history commences, fighting in the Cornfield, Bloody Lane, and Burnside's Bridge rages all day as the Union and Confederate armies suffer a combined 26,293 casualties. 
Wow. One of the things about um, these sorts of wars, at least early on, like the Battle of Bull Run and whatnot uh, at the beginning, is uh, you had people who would come out in carriages and set up picnics. Oh, yeah. To watch these events take place, they would sit out and, uh, you know, have it was. And the thing is, is that, I mean, you know, we, of course, we have movies and stuff and whatever, but at that particular point, I think because of the, the paintings of, you know, you're talking about like, uh, you know, the French and, you know, Indian War and all this kind of stuff that war is this big heroic thing and people want to go out there and see this. Like it's some like sure. tragic comic play or something like that. And they go out there. And when, you know, the stuff hits the fan, then all of a sudden it was like, oh, my God, this is horrible. We mm -hmm. need to get out of here. And they get all their stuff and then they clog the roads and then the troops can't really, you know, effectively retreat. Right. Because all of these spectators were there like clogging. the. I mean, and that's that kind of stuff just blows my mind. So. So here's my question. Do you think the spectators of these battles um, had like pennants and body paint and like tailgated <laughs> and. <laughs> Can you just imagine? Go north, go north, north, north. They're our side. If they can't do it, I don't know what else, but something. <laughs> I don't know. Do you? Do, you do they have cheerleaders? The, uh, do you think that the Confederate uh, side, the, the, they they show up wearing like blackface or something? I mean, I don't uh, know. Do they? No, they'd be mm. in gray. No, to oh, they yeah, they'd be and starving. Thinking, you know, with the whole slavery thing. If no, they would be, no, they'd be no, gray they and starving. Point. No, okay, no. In gray, no. okay. not having much food because, you know, <laughs> seriously. The, well, one of the left things that's eat? fascinating is that the capitals of both the Confederacy and the Union were so close together. Oh, yeah. Two-hour oh, drive sure. by I car, mean, not even. So, um, yeah. yeah so. They're only like 80, 80 miles apart, I think. I mean, the capital of the, the uh, you got to think about it. You from the the Capitol building, you look. You could look across the river and see the Confederacy from the U.S. Capitol. Still can. That's what uh, Sarah Palin had said, I think, in one of her speeches. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that was Russia. That was Russia. Oh, Never Russia. mind, something else entirely. It might have I'm, been. Well, it might as well have been. I'm old. I'm a little feeble. That's okay. <laughs> oh, here's something a little happier. <laughs> in 1971, on a, September 20th. Hurricane Irene becomes the first hurricane known to cross the Atlantic to the Pacific, and it got a new name, Hurricane Olivia. Hmm. I did not know that. That was one I didn't know. Interesting. I bet a lot of people didn't know that. That's why they well, now they it. do. Yeah. Well, that's what we. You're welcome, folks. We are good for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then one last one for you guys. Uh, who wants it? Actually, I've got one that I want to throw in here after this. Go ahead. So go ahead. Okay. Okay. The New York Stock Exchange reopens for the first time um, since the September 11th terrorist attacks. It is the longest period of closure since the Great Depression. All right. Mm. There you go. Wow. Hatfield? What you got, Hatfield? Now, I kind of feel bad about what it is that I'm going to share. Uh-oh. But uh, this is actually, it is in history, but it's uh, September 17th, 2019. Mm. Oh, boy. Um, a huge fire at a cattle breeding facility in Australia has caused thousands of dollars in damage after at least 100 cylinders containing bull semen were destroyed. <laughs> you do Emergency really services were called to the blaze in the early hours at Yarram Herd Services in Gippsland, Victoria. And according to ABC, it took 10 fire crews more than two hours 
to fully oh. extinguish the fire after it broke out around 3 a.m. local time. Yeah, uh, they said that it uh, the fire had completely shredded the building, and uh, they also said that um, the crew had to be wary of projectiles coming at them while they tackled the blaze. They said that the liquid inside the cylinders was rapidly expanding, and essentially the lids of the cryogenic cylinders were just popping off the top, and projectiles were being thrown from the building. Oh, my gosh. That is literally millions of dollars, not just because of the cryogenic technology, but the actual semen itself. Uh, so oh, yeah. Well, we talked about that oh, with, oh, like, yeah. you know, prize-winning pigs and stuff like that. Yeah, so. it's, there's more money. I mean, just as much and on a grander scale. And on the, uh, holy cow, that ain't good. The, wow. So you said it was coming at them? Mm. The liquid inside the cylinders was rapidly expanding and causing the cylinders to essentially become projectiles. It says, so firefighters went into a defensive mode initially to protect themselves because there were also LPG cylinders at the neighboring property, and they did a magnificent job. I don't know what LPG. Uh, liquid propane gas. Oh, wow. Oh, look wow. at you. Look at you, hey, firefighter. I, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, uh, I I dress up and play it every once in a while. What can I say? Now, for those that are just tuning in for the first time, I legitimately am a firefighter, sort of. Uh, I, I dress up in the stuff. I've fought some fires. <laughs> uh, I'm a little overweight to be doing most of it. But uh, anyway, enough about my it, uh, personal. But it also says the actual cylinders are worth between $500, US, uh, $500 uh, uh, Australian, which is about 342 U.S., and 1000 per unit. I believe it. Oh. Wow. I believe every bit of that. That stuff is not cheap. And it says we're coming into the AI season, so there would have been substantial amounts of uh, the stock oh, yeah. inside the tanks that we've lost, which was owned by our local farmers, mm -hmm. and it can range in value from $5 per straw to $95 per straw. I believe it. Mm. I believe it. So, yeah, so that wa wraps up our week in history. Yeah, in a big bad way. That, uh, <laughs> oof, that's a, a rough way to lose a few thousand dollars worth of, uh, well, not hard, hard work. We'll just call it that. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, I love how this podcast is chocked full of single entendres. Hard <laughs> <laughs> enough for the double ones. Oh, man. Right. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, I, I got to take a quick break here. Um, I, I got some business to take care of myself, if that's cool with you. But then yes. we also have the um, our uh, special guest coming in right after the break, so please stay tuned. That's a really good point. Yeah, uh, Brandon yeah. Dillard joins us right after the break. That's awesome. I'm excited. How about you guys? I can't I'm, wait. Yeah, I'm very excited. I have no idea what we're going to talk about. No, you're excited for Brandon, not the not the break. Both. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> wow. And uh, Rude, once again, bungles it up, <laughs> makes it awkward. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we'll be back. All right. right well, this. then uh, we will uh, we'll come back together after the break. Eg exactly. Okay. Back with more history. Who are we getting? The History Bros pod. Every time. Every time. <laughs> <sighs> Hatfield, you get in my head. What can I say? <sighs> 
don't blame it on me. I well, mean, who else would have blamed just need to, You need to clean the peanut butter out of your mouth is what you need to do, I'm thinking. <laughs> Wait, no, this is Iowa, so it's like you guys got like corn butter or something. Yeah. I don't know hey, what you guys Hey, 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 be, be nice to the cornfields. It's getting to be harvest time. And uh, yeah, actually, speaking of harvest time, uh, I, I got a guess for y'all. You ready for this one? Cool. <laughs> harvesting? Yeah, we, yeah. We're, we're harvesting guests. Is that, is that how we're calling? Okay, go on, go on. No, 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 no. Uh, I, I, I'll. Yeah, I, that was really bad. Anyway, I got a special guest, uh, a guy that I met at uh, Monticello here a couple years ago uh, when I was out there for MTI, the Monticello, Monticello Teachers Institute. Uh, his name cool. is Brandon Dillard. He is the manager of special programs at Monticello. Uh, he joined uh, Thomas Jefferson's found or the Thomas Je- Jefferson Foundation in 2010 and worked. Uh, for six years as a, a frontline interpreter, which means he was one of the the uh, tour guides in the house giving uh, tours to two people that were coming in to see that. And I thought it sure. really fit nicely with the conversation that we had last week. So we're like, hey, we'll reach out to him and see if we can get Brandon. So Brandon, welcome to the History Bros pod, and we're sorry for everything we're about to put you through. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Um, I'm happy to uh, suffer through it. <laughs> now, well, well, quick question first, uh, Brandon. You, um, they, uh, you're listed, or you were listed originally, I guess, as an interpreter. Now, I know, like at uh, Williamsburg, interpreters are considered to be like people, I guess, that are in character or in a specific uh, role of sorts. Is that the same definition for what an interpreter is at Monticello, or is it just basically like a tour guide? So I, I'm a tour guide. Uh, I've never worn, um, you know, funny clothes from a different time period. Uh, and I, uh, I, I don't pretend to be anyone else while I'm at work. Okay. So, um, cool. But I would say uh, there are different kinds of interpreters. People at Colonial Williamsburg who are in character are often first person interpreters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and then, you know, occasionally you'll have uh period period interpreters who are not necessarily a certain person but they're from the time period and then what we do is historical interpretation but we're tour guides in modern dress who just talk about the history of the site okay and you've been you were a tour guide for how long years uh six years seven years and i still give tours as much as i can uh, which is not as often as i'd like but uh, i gave a couple today so i'm pretty often out there on the front lines Okay, and now you're uh, you're in charge of uh, special groups. Is that what it, and what does that entail? <laughs> it's it's a it's a broad title uh, for managing a lot of different kinds of programs, um, and basically I manage tours and tour programs that are not uh, the typical. I just showed up with my family from Iowa and got off the side of the road, you know, <laughs> and bought the ticket. So it's like uh, the tour groups that come for evening tours or holiday tours. Um, but I also manage our slavery interpretation. So I manage mm. the Hemings family tour, the slavery at Monticello tour, uh, the Monticello to Main Street tour. And I do a lot of training on understanding slavery and race here and uh, how the Enlightenment played a major role in that development uh, in the 18th century, 19th century. You oh, know, very nice. when, awesome. when Brandon was intro to us, to the group of teachers there, um, I think it was Jacqueline who was talking to us at the time, and she said to us, this is the guy who gets to deal with all of the really hard topics here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he, he, kudos to you, and I tip my hat to you, because some of that stuff I'm, I'm sure is really difficult to to try to find the right lot, to, to work into other people's logic and, and, and help with the understanding. I, I, I can only imagine. Well, thank you. I mean, it's something that I, I've certainly uh, I have a passion for doing. 
and I like people like you have to like people to do this job. And when you mm. like people, you gotta, you gotta deal with all kinds of different kinds of people that have different mm. backgrounds. And when you talk about heavy stuff, people bring a lot of different kinds of emotional baggage. And so we're all just trying to work through it as best we can. Well, I think that's a, that's a, a nice segue into uh, what it is that uh, we're talking about uh, today, actually, in which um, last week and uh, this week we were, it was, it was so much of a discussion last week that we kind of carried it over this week. And thank you again for joining us. Um, we were talking about that uh, there's been a fair number of news articles that have been posted recently about uh, people that are reviewing historic sites and taking uh, a considerable uh, how should we say uh, put well they're giving a little bit of pushback um, with the dealings of slavery at this historic site at these historic sites and uh, some of these reviews uh, even reactions um, to the recent New York Times 1619 project uh, decry approaches of political correctness and rewriting US history when discussing when discussing slavery at these sites and, and just our history in general. And I was curious, what do you think that means? And what are your thoughts about that? So, um, first off, I'm surprised that the press has been, uh, so focused on this. Um, and I'm not unhappy about it. I'm just sort of surprised that, uh, it's, it's gotten as much attention as it has, which is a good thing for the field. Um, and I think also a good thing for, the general public to be more aware of is that this is not um, a fluke thing. It's not something that occasionally happens. It's something that happens often. And there has to be a reason for that beyond just there are some people who don't understand history. Um, and I think that it points to a larger cultural issue. Now, I could I could talk y'all's ear off for way too long about this. And full disclosure, <laughs> I, I literally wrote my thesis on this subject and used TripAdvisor as like one of the ways that I talked about people's baggage. Um, so I, I won't go on too terribly long about it. But I do think it's worth noting that when somebody says to me something about uh, being too political or being politically correct or revisionist history or rewriting history, to me, it's a, it's a red flag. It's a red flag that I am about to have to have a conversation with someone who doesn't <laughs> understand much about what history is, mm. uh, who doesn't mm. understand um, much of the complicated nature of the economic development, of the racial development of the United States of America, and that chances are it's not their fault. I mean, occasionally, <laughs> yeah. you know, occasionally it's somebody's fault. Like occasionally I'll be like, okay, you're just you're you're willfully ignorant. But most of the time, it's like somebody who's retired, who had a nice career as, you know, an engineer or something. So they're not stupid. But the last time they took a history class was when they were in high school, right. which was in like the 60s. And if you've <laughs> read a history book written by a white historian in the 1960s, the view of slavery that you have is very inaccurate. And your understanding of history is probably that history is a set of facts that don't change. And that's what we should talk about are those facts. And that the founding fathers were heroes, and that's all we should ever say, right? Um, you know, that's that's woefully inaccurate. And so I try to, uh, as effectively as I can, encourage them to engage in a deeper examination of their own held beliefs about the past. Well, I would imagine wow. I, I've had to give like backstage tours for uh, shows and stuff like that before, and sometimes I'm curious since you're talking about this. Um, when someone raises 
a situation like, you know, like some of the uh, quotes that I've heard is, you know, why are you talking about this or why are you focusing so much on this? How do you in a group setting such as that, how how, how exactly would you approach uh, talking to somebody without, you know, um, I guess, you know, keeping the obviously you're carrying the the name of the location that you are working for. Um, so how do you maintain the professionalism when you deal with these sort of situations? Or do you just say, kind of say, Hey, we can you know, take questions in a minute and hopefully, you know, people forget, or how do you deal with that? It, you know, it really depends. Every situation is different. Um, and every guide has a different voice, right? So one of the things that I, I do a lot of work with training guides here at Monticello. And one of the things that I always tell people is that you have to use your own voice. Like you have to use what is going to sound natural and real to you. Because people can tell if you're being not genuine. People can tell if you're, you know, uh, giving a, a sterile sort of corporate response. And I don't think you should do that. I think you should talk mm -hmm. to people. Mm -hmm. And so if somebody, you know, genuinely looks like they're coming from a place of trying to understand and they are genuinely conflicted about something that they were probably inaccurately taught, then I'll try to calmly and nicely ask them to tell me more about what it is that they mean. And so this can manifest in a lot of ways, right? Like it's, people can say, why, why are we talking about this so much? And when they say it in that tone, then I'm probably going to say like, well, what do you mean? What is it? What is it that we should be talking about and have a conversation? If somebody says to me, why are you talking about slavery so much? Then my response might be a little different. You know, my tone might match that tone a little bit more. But if you shut down anyone, and I've seen this done, that if you just say, uh, because it's a slave plantation, stupid, then that person's <laughs> not going to listen, right? Like, I mean, that's the answer, right? Like, you came to a slave plantation. What did you think we were going to talk about? But you can't say that, right? You can't, you can't just make somebody feel shut down, and especially when it's somebody who probably actually needs to learn it, mm -hmm. right? The people who point. know it, they're not going to say that. But the people who have the most to learn, the people who are the ones that we actually need to reach, are the ones who are going to have the hardest time hearing it. You know, one of the interesting things about uh, all this is, um, and I think it was alluded to in the Washington Post article, uh, they said the Thomas Jefferson Heritage Society has been a staunch opponent of Monticello's decision to tell visitors that Jefferson fathered uh, Sally Hemings, excuse me, fathered children with Sally Hemings, uh, and felt that uh, Monticello has overemphasized slavery at the expense of Jefferson's accomplishments. Is this a key element to why the story uh, of slavery took so long to be told at sites like Monticello? So I, I think that um, I think that the question is an interesting one that, that like the, the last topic we discussed, it's something that we can really look at our society and our larger culture because I think it tells us more about that. Uh, than any individual uh, or any particular group. You know, I, I don't really know uh, too many people uh, associated with the Thomas Jefferson Heritage Society. I've met a couple of them. But I think these kinds of groups do exist, and they are uh, reactive to changing academic narratives, which have been changing since, you know, the civil rights movement, um, to be more inclusive of perspectives mm -hmm. of people of color, of women, um, and which are changing today to incorporate, you know, queer perspectives, trans perspectives uh, uh, and different religions. And these things, they give us a broader understanding of our history. And I think that that what people have a hard time with and it's not all people and it's not only older white men. Right. But it is a group of people 
that has long been singularly empowered. Mm. And the singularly empowered group has been taught a narrative of white male heroism and any conversation that incorporates any other viewpoint feels like an attack on that perspective. Mm -hmm. And so I hear this all the time that people say that, oh, you talk too much about slavery. You didn't even mention any of Jefferson's accomplishments. And I really want to say, like, really? You didn't hear anybody mention that Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence at Monticello? That's <laughs> <laughs> not true. Like, really? Nobody mentioned that he was the president of the United States? Nobody mentioned the Louisiana Purchase? Nobody mentioned the house was a UNESCO World Heritage Site? Because I bet none of that is true, especially since it's written on your brochure. <laughs> so, you know. so, Well, so are you suggesting that this broadening of a discussion of slavery at places like Monticello and Mount Vernon, do you think that these are challenging the way people our feeling about our founding fathers and perhaps the values of the United States in a, in a positive way or a negative way? Oh, I think, I think it's absolutely a long overdue discussion uh, that just realizes that the history of America is more than the history of dead white men. Mm. And I think that, that the, it gets back to that idea that some people believe that history is just this absolutely objective series of facts. And that's not what it is. And in fact, I, I have this conversation often. It's a bit, uh, it's a bit out there in terms of what we can discuss in a forty-five-minute house tour. But I, there's no way for us to get to any objective truth, anyway, as human beings. Sorry, guys, I have an undergraduate degree in philosophy. <laughs> so, <okay. laughs> you know, whether or not it exists, that's a debate for a different time. I think it does, but whatever. But I don't think that we can, as humans as subjective humans have a conversation about objective facts. What I do think we can do is take in as many perspectives as possible to get us closer to some semblance of the truth. And history in this country has long been told by a very small subset of people who were incidentally empowered white men. Mm -hmm. And so when people talk about these problems that we're erasing history, we're changing history, it's politically correct. They don't talk about the positive accomplishments I think that it's it's a great example of white fragility, of people freaking out that somebody is talking about someone other than them. And honestly, it's uh, it's interesting to watch. It's interesting to see. Uh, and it is a backlash that I think shows that the world is truly changing and the conversations are changing. And I think that backlash manifests in a lot of ways. Um, and we're seeing a lot of that throughout the world right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um. Brandon, again, and thank you again for, for taking the time. Um, one of the questions I had was, follows along those same lines. Um, do you think the addition of talking about slavery has changed the demographic of the people who come to visit Monticello? Not enough. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it does. And... Um, this is this is something that's true in museums across the country, historic sites across the country. Um, visitation is on a, a downward trend. It has been for years. Mm -hmm. uh, and right now, for some reason, there is a really drastic low. Uh, and this is not just at Monticello. It's also at Mount Vernon. It's also at Montpelier. Uh, it's also at historic sites not related to ours. Places like Gettysburg um, are, are seeing this drastic decline in visitors. 
and we all have ideas about why that might be, you know, and it could be something uh, as, as broad and as, as grand as, you know, people having a hard time with political divisive, politically divisive rhetoric in the country, or it could be as basic as, Hey, Netflix is cool. (laughs) Like I'm going to sit at home. I'm going to watch the dark crystal reboot and that's what I'm going to do instead of going to the storage site. But I think that uh, it is a reality that the people who go to museums, they are wealthy, they're older and they're white. And the people who like going to a historic house tour where you get to hear all about the furniture and the doilies, <laughs> those are wealthy, older white people. And if we don't incorporate different narratives and if we don't change the way that we talk about this stuff, we won't exist. Sure. Because hmm. younger generations, you know, Generation Z, millennials, like they, they know that history is more complicated than an objective series of facts for the most part, not entirely. There are plenty of them who are also miseducated. But it, it does show that the changing demographics of the country, you know, in terms of race, in terms of ethnicity, but also the fact that people are more open to these complicated conversations because they're talking about it on Facebook. They're talking about it, uh, you know, not only on social media, but also in classrooms at colleges, you know, and right. more and more people are educated than they ever have been in a different way. And information is just out there. So I think that the incorporation of slavery is absolutely overdue, absolutely necessary in order to tell an honest truth. Like it's a, it's an obligation to history, but it's also a necessity to ensure the survival of museums and historic sites, because nobody's going to come to these places if they're still telling a mid 20th century narrative of worshiping a demigod uh, and, and, you know, this heroic man who never really existed. We talked about demographics. Um, let me throw a geography question at you. Um, do you think that the topic of slavery is more delicate in certain areas of the country, or is it more of a tie to which historical figures the the home is tied to or the land is tied to? Yes. <laughs> okay. I, I, I think, I, of course, that yes, uh, but it is complicated. And I think that our... Uh, one of the things that's interesting about working at the home of such a famous founding father uh, is the ways in which people really have this strong personal identity that ties them to Thomas Jefferson. And I'm sure this is much the same at Mount Vernon, uh, Washington's home. It's just that in the United States, so much of who we are is tied up into this narrative of how we came to be. And that's not true for everybody, but it, but it is interesting in the ways that it's uh, manifested as, as part of our ourselves. You know, if you go to a historic site in England and you say that Henry VIII was not such a nice guy, nobody gets mad at you. <laughs> you know, it just it doesn't happen quite the same way. Right. Um, but here people really do because their values are tied up in these mythological values of the founders. And I think that that has a regional effect as well, particularly with the Civil War. You know, when you have conversations about uh, what the South is and what the South means, you know, I'm from Georgia. I grew up there. Um, My full disclosure, my grandfather's name was Robert E. Lee Hembree Jr., right? Nice. Um, so like this is part of where i come from it's part of so like, he was a fan of the dukes of hazard is what you're telling me yeah, probably <laughs> uh, yeah i mean this is this is part of southern identity is this 
the whole lost cause idea, which the lost cause narrative of the civil war has a retroactive effect on the founders. Like mm. the idea is that Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson were fighting for states' rights and not slavery. And the idea is that they were kind slave masters. These ideas are pervasive. And there are kids that I meet from the South today who still say stuff like that because that's what their granddaddies taught them. And wow. they don't know the realities of it because no one in high school ever plopped down Alexander Hamilton Stevens' cornerstone speech and said, read that. You know, I'm lucky. I had a good high school history teacher who plopped that speech down and said, read that. And when you do that, it makes it much harder to argue that it wasn't about slavery or that it wasn't a racist cause. Mm -hmm. And so when you're having this conversation in Virginia, yeah, it's super challenging because there are a lot of people who are Virginian who have that lost cause identity as part of who they are. Not everybody, obviously, but there are a lot of people who have it. And then further, like we're in Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. people, people know about Charlottesville, Virginia for a very different reason now than what they knew about it prior to 2017. And when I travel around, you know, the country and I meet people and they say, where are you from? I say, Charlottesville, there's a look on their face. That's like, Oh, you're from that place. Which means that this town in particular is heavily scarred by a fight over white supremacy and memory mm. and what that means. Mm. And so here, it's real hard to have that conversation because people bring all their baggage and they come up and they want to talk about, you know, what are we, are you going to tear down Monticello next? Right. You should tear down the statues of Jefferson too. And it's just interesting to have, to have wow. that, that kind of personal baggage when people are, are literally angry uh, when they arrive because they feel like they have been attacked somehow because someone said, yeah, but slaves also mattered like slaves mattered too. You should talk about that too. Sure, sure. Yeah, I absolutely can wow. can see where you're coming from. I mean, that's and that's the thing. You know, when I was out out there, what uh, two summers ago was less than a year after that event. And I know the first thing on my mind when we got into town as I'm coming in is like, hmm, I wonder where that park was. So I, I get what, exactly what you're talking about there. Ugh. It's an interesting thing. It's a, it was a strange time to live here, and it's horrifying, right? You know, I mean, the. The realities of it are super complicated because on the one hand, it could happen absolutely anywhere in America. And that's a story that I think Americans need to recognize is that these idiot boys who came here and, and you know, perpetrated an act of terrorism, they were from all over the country. They were mm -hmm. from, you know, they were reading the Internet <laughs> all, all over the country and getting these hate messages that caused what happened to happen here. Right. But some of them are very well read and there is such a thing as like an educated bigot and they chose Monticello's this area they chose Charlottesville because they know that Thomas Jefferson wrote very troubling things about race they chose the University of Virginia because they know that it was the intellectual hub of the racism in the antebellum period they knew that and that's why they came here do you think that uh, Jefferson's uh, perspective, I mean, because some of the things that you can read about what it is that he said um, are kind of shocking when you're thinking about uh, the, you know, the man who, you know, all men are created equal and whatnot. Um, do you think that it had that it had sort of evolved over time? Because they were in some cases, he, if I'm correct, he had talked about that. Um, 
that in the book of fate that there's nothing more uh, certain that the these people should be free. But he also said that there's really no way that he felt that the two groups would be able to live together either. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and Jefferson, you know, he certainly changed over time. What what person doesn't, right? You know, this is a man who would be 83 years old. His ideas, they developed, um, they changed. But when it comes to slavery, he was remarkably consistent throughout the course of his life in a couple of ways. Uh, first and foremost, he always denounced the institution. But Jefferson his whole life said slavery is evil. He called it a moral abomination. He called it a deplorable crime and he never wavered in that. But he also believed that slavery would be abolished eventually for a future generation. And when that happened, that those who had been enslaved would have to leave his country. And he had several different options. He said the Caribbean, he said maybe somewhere in the West and of course, Africa. And when he was talking about his nation and when he was talking about, um, formerly enslaved people, he was talking about the differences between white people and black people. And this is most notable in Query 14, notes the state of Virginia, which is Jefferson's uh, scientific treatise on Virginia. And when he talks about the differences between black people and white people, you can really get a notion of just how pseudo this science was. And mm. it fits directly into the context of the Enlightenment period, these are white men, mostly from Europe, a couple from the United States, who have created a narrative that there are hierarchies of people based on the color of their skin and their origins, and that those hierarchies mean that white men from Western Europe and from you know those derived from Western Europe are naturally superior to everyone else. And Jefferson, he was the consummate lawyer, and he was also a man who was never going to directly engage with a fight that he knew there wasn't enough evidence to win. So when he wrote it, he said, I advance it therefore as a suspicion only that the blacks, whether a distinct race or made so by time and circumstances are inferior to the whites in endowments of both mind and body. Mm. There's a lot to that. There's a lot to unpack there. But Jefferson clearly said that he believed that blacks are inferior to whites. And when you look at that and you look at the way that this man lived, on a home, a mansion that was built by black people, where he was cared for by black people, where his food was cooked by black people, that was grown by black people. And yet he says that blacks are inferior and goes farther to say that they can't take care of themselves. It's a pretty shocking act of rationalization that this generation took to make themselves say slavery is wrong, but what we're doing is right because we're actually taking care of people who can't take care of themselves a group of people who took care of their every basic want and need. Right. And he, he actually did say, uh, well, John Meacham in his, in his uh, book, The Art of Power, actually focused on one uh, segment that he said were uh, the, the way that slaves or the way that uh, plantation owners, I guess, or slave owners treated their slaves was something that was learned by the child watching their father or watching their parents and how it was sort of, it's not he sort of alluded to the fact that it's not something that's natural, but it's that treatment of slaves as being less than um, is a learned trait by watching how poorly, you know, your parents treated the slaves. And I just find it it's it's fascinating that Jefferson, you know, who's known for all men are created equal in the Declaration of Independence, still held these, you know, this ideology. But like you said, I mean, how old was he when he was writing this stuff versus 
uh, you know, Declaration of Independence? How much had he, you know, aged at that point? And that's actually a question. I'm not sure if I <laughs> sure. Uh, it's just a few years, actually. Um, okay. And this this is an interesting point as well. Is that Jefferson was 33 when he wrote the Declaration of Independence? And I hear people sometimes say things, uh, you know, that oh, his opinions about slavery changed over time. I've, I've read that. I've heard that. And I've heard people say, well, he said, you know, he opposed slavery when he was younger, but that was when he was more idealistic. But I've never actually heard anybody say he wrote the Declaration of Independence when he was younger. That's when he was more idealistic because mm -hmm. nobody questions whether or not he continued to hold the beliefs that all men are created equal. But they do question this this idea about slavery. And, and it's interesting to hear people you know, grapple with it here. But I think that. You know, he wrote notes on the state of Virginia in the 1780s. So just, you know, just a few years after he's in his 40s. And I think that the most telling letter is one that he writes in 1826 when he's, he's almost uh, he's almost gone. He's 83. And he writes in this letter that my opinions on this matter have been before the public for 40 years. So he basically says that, like, to the person he's writing to, a man named Heaton, he's saying, I, I haven't changed my opinion on this. Like, I, I still believe the same thing, which is that slavery is wrong, but that, you know, a, freeing a slave is abandoning a child. Mm. It, it's, it's, wow. it's shocking to read. It's fascinating to read. But it is the only way to understand how Jefferson could have done what he did is to look at it through the lens of race, to understand how that generation believed that slavery was wrong, but it was thrust upon them. And so they were going to ameliorate the conditions of their slaves, which means they were going to treat them well. But when we look at the historical record, we can see that there is no such thing as a good slaveholder, and it's not possible to treat somebody who you're forcing into labor well. Mm. And by the end of the day, it's all has to be understood through this this context of an incredibly unequal and racist culture. Absolutely. You know, and that's the thing I think wow. based on what you just said there, I, I, I think if I were to make my own hypothesis, a lot of this is the fact that people, the, the, you know, everybody's allowed to have an opinion, whether or not they are informed enough to be accurate is, is the key. Right. Um, it seems to me like people have an idea of what they want to be the truth about slavery. They have an idea of what has been told to them. Um, but to be able to get to the point of, of the, the real truth is just truly a lack of education. Is, is that close? I think so. And I, you know, I don't want to say that in a way to say that like people who have a hard time with it are stupid or are not educated, but they hmm. lack the, the broader education of, you know, the humanities and history <laughs> and all that stuff that we like to talk about. So wait, um, wait, and we, I, think, we and I think that there's something to that. And I, and I think that understanding history as this, as this looking back, like, like it's not possible to talk about history without our own lens. You know, people say to me all the time is, Oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't judge Jefferson through a 21st century lens. It's like, well, okay, how do you not do that? Right. <laughs> like how do you, how do you turn off who we are? And one, one of the things that people also say when they say you shouldn't judge Jefferson through that 21st century lens, these are the same people who think that we need to make sure that we keep the statues of the historical figures. Isn't that a judgment? Yeah. Hmm. So it's oh. like, so you can have a positive judgment, but you can't have a negative judgment of the past. And I think that that's because the way that they were taught about history is that they were taught that these men are heroes. And to get to your point, like, no, of course nobody wants to hear that 
people were beaten with whips, that families were separated, that people were sold because Thomas Jefferson bought too much wine. You know, of course, nobody wants to hear that. But that's the way it was. And that's not just Jefferson. That's the way it was on every slave plantation. They're labor camps. People were forced to work. Children were beaten with whips. That's what happened. And it happened at every one of them. So when people come here and they're here on vacation, I get it. They're here because they want to go see this place that where they might have an entertaining time. But it is hard to grapple with the reality of this place means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And to a lot of Americans, it's real hard to come to a slave plantation. And it's not something that they can just do and think about in some positive way where they can celebrate the accomplishments of Thomas Jefferson. Because their ancestors would have been on the receiving end. Sure, sure. You know, one of the things that is absolutely fascinating to me, and going back to when I went on the Hemings family tour uh, with some guy by the name of Brandon, uh, who was my guide. <laughs> uh, and I still remember we were standing in the library when this came up. Um, so given the famous accounts of Jefferson's fathering of, of children uh, with the enslaved um, or members of the enslaved population there, how do you approach that conversation regarding like the educational process, you know, do you take it a scientific way? Do you have anecdotal evidence? Um, I, I know that there's that DNA gets brought up a lot. Um, and then the other thing that I'd love to touch on is, uh, and I forget which document it was. He talked about uh, how, what ratio you were finally had the slave quote unquote bred out of you. Uh, if you can kind of speak towards that stuff. Sure. Um, so, I, you know, Thomas Jefferson's paternity of Sally Hanks' children is not a new story. And I know you guys know that, but I mean, this mm. is something that's been in the public eye since 1802. Uh, it was popular in Jefferson's life. And I think that the way that obviously the way that Monticello talks about this has changed so much over the past uh, 20, 30 years. But we've held the position that Thomas Jefferson was the father of Sally Hemings children since the year 2000. Mm. So almost 20 years now. Wow. Um, and the ways that we've talked about it. Yeah. That's changed over time. Um, but I think how much a guide wants to get into what evidence we use depends on the tour. Mm. Um, and it depends on the amount of time we have or how the guests seem to be receiving it or understanding it. Um, but, you know, a couple of years ago, we made the decision to drop the qualifiers. You know, for years, we've said that, you know, the Thomas Jefferson Foundation believes that Thomas Jefferson was the father of Sally Hemings children. We believe this based on statistical evidence, DNA analysis and oral history. Um, but a couple of years ago, we, we said, you know, historians have accepted this for decades. Uh, no new evidence has come to light since 1998. And there is not a single like respected mainstream academic Jefferson scholar who doesn't believe that Jefferson was the father of Hemings children. So we don't qualify it anymore. We just say Jefferson was the father of Hemings children. And when we talk about it, we talk about it as part of the history. But if someone yeah, wants to know, and people no, do, right? you know, so if someone wants to know, we, we will say, uh, you know, we believe this for these reasons and we'll get into things like the oral history, like the written record, like the statistical analysis, like the DNA. And often the arguments against it that people come with, it's based on false information. 
that they've read on websites or the things that have been written by pundits and not historians. And a lot of it is, it's just, it's humorous arguments based on logical fallacies or based on, uh, you know, com complete nonsense. There isn't any new evidence and it's just a different interpretation of exactly what's there. One of the things that's most often said is that, well, Monticello says DNA proved that Jefferson was the father. No, we don't. We've never said that. Mm. We said that DNA provides a very compelling corroborative point to all of the other evidence. The biggest piece is that historians ignored the Hemings for a long time and accepted the Randolphs. Sure. They, they ignored the Hemings for a long time because white historians were not interested in hearing this story from a black family. They listened to the Randolphs because they were white. The Randolph said the cars were the father. The Hemings said the Jeffersons were the father. DNA test was done. DNA proved it couldn't have been a car. Had to be a Jefferson. After that DNA came out for the very first time, some of those white people said, no, wait, actually, it was Randolph Jefferson, his little brother. <laughs> Never seriously suggested before 1998. For some weird reason, they kept this story hidden that would have completely broken apart the narrative that Thomas Jefferson was the father kept it hidden for 200 years just because that's that's pretty silly and so i think that those kinds of arguments when we have them when we have conversations with guests if we have the time usually we can explain why we believe what we believe in a way that that people find compelling they understand it and i never say to somebody like oh well that's just not true what i say is i've read similar things let's talk about what the evidence shows us and why we believe what we believe. Sure. Well, we had, yeah, we had said in a, in a, in the last episode that, uh, his, uh, fathering children with slaves was one of the worst kept secrets, um, in DC <laughs> oh, yeah. and, and yeah. surrounding, yeah. but, and it's, and it's fascinating that, you know, and that, but that somehow along the way, that knowledge or that understanding gets lost in exchange for wanting to, again, focus on, the good parts, which don't get me wrong. I mean, Thomas Jefferson did had some, you know, good qualities and some good things and he did some amazing things for the country, but not everybody is a saint. And when you go to these uh, like Monticello or Mount Vernon or any of these kinds of places, then you have where this is their sole purpose is to relay that factual information about these individuals. And then you have people that go there and be like, no, 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 I don't want to believe that. <laughs> I want you to stop talking about that. I didn't come here to learn other things. I wanted to come here and just enjoy the rides and eat the carnival food. You know, I, I want to have like <laughs> a vacation. I don't want it to be this, you know, so it's, you know, that's, um, that's just a fascinating aspect to all that. That's a tricky thing for us, right? We're an independent nonprofit. We exist because guests come here. Mm -hmm. Like we will only continue to exist if people pay for tickets and, and come take tours. And so, you know, what well, we feel we have an obligation to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, however many people complain that they didn't want to hear that history, like we're not an amusement park, right? We're not Bush Gardens. Right. If, yeah. if you don't want history, go to Bush Gardens. But if you want history, <laughs> you know, come to a place like this. So it's, it's, it's tricky. It can be tricky, but I do say to people all the time, like, I say this to tours often, like, I know that's a heavy conversation we just had. Um, you know, thank you for bearing with me. If you didn't want to have it, you shouldn't have chosen to come to a historic site. <laughs> you know, <and> usually <laughs> right. people laugh, you know, they get it. They get the point. 
And Maybe Disney will wind up making a, a film of Thomas Jefferson like they did of Pocahontas. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and no more problems ever again. Just right. like right. He didn't even own slaves. He just had this nice house and right, he, right. you know, read lots of books. And a raccoon saying to him. Talking animals. Yeah. Well, you have uh, uh we got one more question, and you've been this has been an amazing conversation. And again, we appreciate you being Absolutely. on and we know that you have a whole bunch of things that uh, you need to do uh, today. And you've had a whole long day of, of, um, of, uh, rewriting history. <laughs> um, but, um, just curious, um, seeing that, uh, Geldmacher and Rude and I are, um, the three of us are educators. We, we all teach uh, middle school. Um, and sometimes we will take these field trips to these locations um, what advice would you give uh, to other historic sites in their approaches to discussing slavery's role in their history? You know, I, I think that getting back to some of the stuff we talked about earlier, um, you have an obligation to, you know, you have a duty to. If you're going to talk about history, then you need to talk about history as fully as possible, which means you have to include as many different perspectives as you can, which means you don't get to a race enslavement in favor of something that's happier. Mm. Um, and and I, I've been to historic sites that continue to do this. I mean, there are plenty of plantation homes all over this country where you can go visit and you'll hear, you know, these myths about the happy servants and whistling walks and all kinds of absurdities that we know never existed. So I think that first and foremost, you have to tell the truth. Um, because of that obligation. Secondly, you have to tell the truth because if you don't, you're not going to exist in 50 years mm -hmm. um, because of the changing demographics of this country, the realities that people are more educated because of access to education and that this weird historic pastime of like going to history sites and like going through a museum, that's a 20th century invention. And there's no guarantee that that's going to continue to exist which is a frightening prospect for me, given my chosen career. <laughs> but, you know, I think that it's uh, it's something that we need to face is the, you know, historic house museums. This is something that was very much part of this, like, early 20th century memorialization time period in the United States. And so recognizing all of that and talking about it with people, I think, is, is the best advice that I could give. And I think most importantly, the work that we are doing at Monticello, what, what I feel is the most profoundly important is that conversation about why this stuff matters. You know, and you made the, the comment earlier about Jefferson's accomplishments. Like, don't get me wrong. This is the man that wrote the American Declaration of Independence. This is the man that gave us the creed by which we stand on our self-governance. Like every time this country asks itself what it believes in and who is free and who is equal, Jefferson's words are invoked. And whether that's by Dr. King and the I Have a Dream speech or Elizabeth Cady Stanton at Seneca Falls or Harvey Milk, like we continuously repeat this idea of equality. And even the most cynical, like academic, uh, people who argue that neoliberal capitalism and rights-based discourse are all uh, a, a drudge on society, even they still believe in equal voices, just that we haven't achieved it yet. And I think there's something to that. So I think the importance of talking about all of this is because it is at the core of who we are. Like our idea, our ideology, it's founded upon this belief that people do deserve to be equal and free. 
And so if you're going to talk about the past, you better talk about all the people in the past and how that relates to us today. Because it's not like slavery is something that ended 150 years ago and then there were no more problems with racism in the United States. Right, right, absolutely. It affects us to this day. And when it gets to talking about Jefferson or Washington, it's not about these guys as individuals. Like, yes, they made choices. Many of those choices are reprehensible and we need to discuss them. Many of those choices were pretty impressive choices where they put their lives on the line for their belief about self-governance. But the bigger problem is a culture born of white supremacy that continues to have a pervasive impact on a culture in which we live today, where black people are denied equal access to housing, education, wealth. They're incarcerated at unbelievable rates. And if we don't have a conversation about how race-based slavery is where all that stuff comes from, then we're not having a conversation about who we are at all. And we're not able to fix these problems. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's really if dope. I were on, if, if, if you could see me, I would be standing up and applauding right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you guys. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me on. I, I, I think this is very cool. Uh, my girlfriend is a middle school science teacher. Um, my favorite people on earth are teachers and uh, there's there's no way in the world that I would be who I am today if it wasn't for a couple of awesome teachers who took me under their wing and saw past all of my misbehavior when I was that age. So I, I think that's what you do. I really do. Well, well we, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. thanks. And, and we appreciate what you do because talking about this stuff is not easy. And for a lot of us, knowing how to address it, is key and uh having this conversation with you today has, has just been outstanding well thank you guys yep. i appreciate it brandon dillard joining us he is the director of special programming at monticello and wow that's all i can say right now that was awesome, awesome. that was pretty good and i've seen a lot of keanu reeves movies <laughs> <laughs> well, i'll leave it to hatfield wow uh, yeah, no, no, that was, I mean, he was our first guest on the History Bros. So, I mean, I think there's a little round of applause that needs to go there. And I am, that was, uh, that, what a great uh, guest to have for that. He was fantastic. The, uh, the, the bar has been set very high. Extremely high. Yeah. So, guys, uh, I think that's, I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, last week, I, I went to the comedy show that was this week. Um, and, uh, so I got to go to that this time and actually be right. You, uh, you're, you're a time traveler? Is that what you're saying? No, I uh, don't own a calendar. Uh, or oh, I well, can't it's Iowa. It. I mean, you oh. just look outside and what color is the corn? Oh, it must be Tuesday. Right. So what do we do in the wintertime? <laughs> well, then it's like uh, you guys got you're in pigs. Iowa. inside. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> Lord. I've been... <laughs> Holy cow. Can't been... see the pigs. It must be nighttime. <laughs> now, wait a second. Wait a second. Wait, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. If I remember correctly, if I recall correctly, North Carolina is known for its pig barbecue. I was not saying we weren't. <laughs> well, th there you go then. If you want to combine it all, we have some great tobacco flavored fat back. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Jesus. Oh, well, I think that this was a great episode. It and was. Um, I think, uh, I mean, it's been fantastic for us to kind of tie up this uh, particular situation, which I have every 
faith that we will be uh, circling back to at some point. But we'll um, that. I think that's a good place to uh, to wrap this uh, this episode up. So, uh, yeah, gentlemen, it has been a pleasure today. As always, it it's been a pleasure. So for uh, Jason Geldmacher, no, Jason Hatfield, <laughs> Brian Geldmacher, and myself, uh, whoever the heck I am, uh, Jason Rude, thank you for joining us. Have yourselves a good one, everybody. See ya. Peace out. A deuces.